0: Last week we did the Ottoman Empire, and this is also a, a great historical Islamic empire that is trying to um, deal with the ever increasingly ambitious and powerful Europeans uh, in there that are showing up in their neighborhood. And I guess where vis-a-vis Russia have always been in their neighborhood
1: well and the biggest rival of the
0: ottomans and the biggest rival of the ottomans yeah on the east on the east anyway yeah <laughs> so uh for for reference i was reading uh abbas amanat uh, the pivot of the universe which was just focused on one of the uh persian emperors nasruddin shah who reigned from 1831 to 1896 and then uh, i read the kind of historical background chapter in a book which is not really about this period it's called uh, Iran between two revolutions so it's really like pre 1979 Iran and that's by Ervand Abrahamian uh that one was recommended to me by friend of the show Sina Rahmani the East is a podcast uh thanks for that Sina Sina's uh Iranian background himself so got to uh you know, we'll see how we'll see how I, I will find out how I've done <laughs> or how we've done. I will hear about it uh, depending. So, uh, you know, starting with the geography, let, let me give you this CIA world fact book uh, <laughs> briefing on uh, on Iran, on the Persian Empire. Um, so apparently I'm told I, I looked uh, on a Google map and, and I, this is not something I know. I have known for a long time, but I'm told from both of these sources that Iran has relatively fewer navigable rivers and lakes. So like um, interior kinds of bodies of water uh, compared to Iraq or, you know, the Levant or whatever. There are four big mountain ranges and then there's a big central desert. Um, in the 19th century, it was a country of villages, you know, which is what they describe India as, although India was also very much a country of big, giant cities, but um, 10,000 villages in the 1850s, apparently. Um, there were 80 towns, uh, but even by the 19th century, 25% of the country was nomadic. And there are, uh, besides Persian speakers, there's lots of Turkic speakers, there's lots of Arabic speakers. Um and uh, there are comments, which I think I'll, I may be able to quote a little bit later in the episode, but there are comments from European travelers in the 19th century and the 18th uh, about, you know, kind of how well to do some of these, you know, the, the average, the average Persian Empire subject was, you know, doing okay in terms of like food and uh, work and, and housing. Would um, that be because the Europeans hadn't showed up yet? <laughs> I, you know, I um, I would probably make that case, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's like one of the these characteristics of these Asian countries is uh, that you know that that that's like the the rulers of these countries, you know, whether it's Hindustan or you know the Moguls or the Chinese or the Southeast Asians uh different kingdoms and empires they they measured their legitimacy a big part of their legitimacy was the ability to you know feed you know whether the peasants had food in their bellies kind of thing um so it was always something that that they took pride in that they uh you know that was part of you know whether they would be allowed to rule or not whether the gods would smile upon them or not or god (laughs) definitely just god in in this case Mm. (laughs) don't say gods when you're talking about islamic areas but um yeah so in terms of agriculture there's a lot of growing of mulberry um trees mulberry bushes because those are silkworms favorite food um and so there's a lot of silk production cotton tobacco iran is big for tobacco again as you will see from some very interesting business deals that are done with europeans later on in the century
1: yeah, and like the Ottomans, it's a very multi ethnic empire. Mm-hmm. At at their height, they controlled obviously, you know, modern Iran, but also uh as far as Azerbaijan, Armenia, most of Georgia, uh Iraq, Kuwait, uh, much of Afghanistan and even, you know, parts of Syria and Pakistan and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. So it's an enormous uh empire.
0: Damn. And- this might be a good time to ask you, and you may not know the answer to this question, but it's something that I've been wondering for many years. Uh, I understand why Georgia in the United States is called Georgia. That's because of King George in England. Why is this Georgia in Eastern Europe or Western Asia called Georgia? Do you have any idea? <laughs>
1: um can I get back to you?
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll I'll try. I'll try to look it up now while you're talking about population.
1: Okay. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I knew it was a multi ethnic empire. I didn't realize how much, by design, the rulers moved population around. This goes back to the the 1500s um, to, uh, Tamas the first. Apparently, he he was. Getting tired or or worried about relying on the kizilbash. This is the semi-feudal military tribal elite. So his immediate warrior followers, and and these kizilbash seem to have believed that staying close to the ruler uh, and and being in in physical proximity gave them some advantages some spiritual uh, obviously some political and of course you know uh, getting richer so if you're the ruler and you're constantly surrounded by this feudal or or tribal elite who believe that they are entitled to be physically close to you uh, you know Maybe you'd like to have some other options to turn to. So Tom, Tomas uh, was invading the Caucasus at the time and he started deporting thousands and And I, I don't know whether to believe the statistics I've seen, hundreds of thousands of Georgians, Armenians and, and Circassians back to the Iranian heartland. Uh, at first... Uh, obviously members of the uh, harem, um, uh, military contingents. But eventually he started bringing back artisans and tradesmen and and just setting them up in the heartland of Iran. So you have this large ethnic relocation program, and he wasn't the only one. Uh, Abbas did the same thing. Apparently, Abbas brought 200,000 Georgians and 300,000 Armenians back to Iran and created a whole new, uh, I don't know what you would want to call it, a layer of Iranian uh, Iranian society. And the hope that they seemed to have harbored was that this would help society become uh, a meritocracy. Oh.
0: That 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 uh, that concept again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because yeah, like these multi-ethnic empires, like you said, even the the Habsburg or the Austro-Hungarian Empire did a fair bit of this too, right? There's this some yeah. kind of, but not probably at the like elite level, not masses like this. Not, no, not, not in numbers like this.
1: No, and even at the elite level, the Habsburgs very frequently resorted to, you know. Divide and and conquer. Yeah, as long as your subjects are more annoyed with each other than they are with you. Yeah,
0: this is a different model. You're really you're moving huge numbers of people around. And I mean, you know, Kalida's family they're they're from Herat oh, in okay. uh, in Afghanistan, which you know was part of Persia Frequently too, part of the Persian Empire. Yeah, and but they're Pashtun, and there's not a lot of Pashtuns in Herat. They're mostly, I guess, Persian speakers. Tajik uh, is, I think, what they're called um uh but they're you know Persian speaking uh in Herat so you know when when I've been able to gather a little bit about their family background but it's like it's some similar concept where it's like the de- early 20th century or middle of the 20th century detribalization ideas of like get moving people from one ethnicity to a different part of the country and trying to settle them there Uh, so yeah it's interesting to see this happening in another part of the neighborhood i guess
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, so georgia i looked it up while you were talking Um, based on wikipedia anyway which we all know how much i rely on wikipedia (laughs) i don't and i don't advise it but it doesn't seem like anybody has any idea <laughs> Why? So there's like, oh, maybe it's the Persian Gurgan. Uh, maybe it's uh, l- maybe they thought it was the Greek word for tiller of the land, or um, or something. Uh, the term, the ancient Iranian appellation of the region, which was referred to as Gurgan or the Land of the Wolves, but apparently Georgians don't call it that. Anyway, Georgians call it Sakartvelo. Yeah, so getting back to the uh, Persian Empire, of which, yeah, Georgia was a part. Um, There's a lot of, in the 19th century, there's a lot of religious schisms in this part of the world. Um, There's, uh, in the 1810s, there's a leader who arises, Sheikh Ahmed Asa'i, Asa'i, who argues that imams are divine and perfect believers can communicate with the so-called hidden imam. So Asai attracts the following, which later splits in the 1840s into two, three groups. The first group are called the Sheikhis, and they're considered sort of progressive. The Kermanis, who are considered conservative, and then a third group who waits for the Messiah. And they're waiting for the Messiah. And sure enough, um, Ali Muhammad shows up in Karbala, which I guess is part of Iraq now, um, in 1844 uh and otherwise known as the bab I, I think in arabic the bab is a door uh, i don't know whether that has anything to do with why he's called the bab so the bab preaches legal protection for merchants and end to corruption and improvement in the status of women he is executed in 1850 and the babis are persecuted so they split again into the bahai if you've heard of the bahai faith uh-huh. and the azali Also, there's Ismailis, Nematis, and Haidaris. Um, One British minister uh, at one point says, who served there from 1836 to 1853, he says, even well-informed people can give no real explanation of the original causes of these divisions. (laughs) So he's going around trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh, So lots of splits, lots of splitting going on. Um, In terms of lifestyle and organization, Um, Because it's very decentralized at this time, Um, there's kind of a village system, tribal leaders, elders. There's elected heads of the village. They're called the Kadhuda. Uh, So the Kadhuda uh, cannot be easily uh, dislodged (laughs) if the people want them. So here's another um, English example. Observer, He says, whenever the large majority is in favor of one man, the authorities cannot resist their wish. If they did, the people would stand upon their rights and would not pay taxes. Um, towns, The towns, at least, they have uh, a lot of coffee houses. There's public baths, um, theaters where they show basically like a lot of Shia passion plays kind of stuff. Like, so it's religious themed theaters. And then there's gyms, there's wrestling. Uh, Pelvani, it's called in, that, in, uh, in Iranian or in Persian culture. Um, in Indian culture, it's called gusti, but the move set is basically the same, and so is the rules. Um, census in 1877 found that there were 200 different occupations, um, including craft guilds for many. So it's a complex economy, lots of um, skills and technology and so on. Um, as far as the Shia religion goes, there's a lot of emphasis on martyrdom, there's a lot of uh, like ceremonies where people do like self-flagellation and, um, you know, kind of lament the, the death of their big martyr, who is, I guess, Ali. Um, and uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's a big part of the culture. In the ter- in military terms, there's the Royal Bodyguard, which includes 4,000 Georgian slaves. Um, there's also a militia system like we saw in China and elsewhere. There's a mass militia of about 150,000. And then the main fighting force is like a tribal cavalry kind of thing. 80,000 mounted uh, troops. That's the main fighting force. And that's also, we saw that with uh, the Moguls and the Chinese. There's like the kind of like the bannermen, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always this cavalry. There's always, the, there's like a body, uh, an elite bodyguard. And then there's a a militia system. And then uh, you heard all about this with the Ottoman Empire, while well, the Persians also tried to create a modern army, the Nizami Jadid, um, and that the New Order. They, they created the same kind of thing, the New Order Army. Um, the New Order Army had similar problems with the Ottomans, but even more because of the kind of tribalized nature of the of the society. So because of that, people in the New Order army would be kind of tribal, and that kind of defeated the purpose of the (laughs) New Order army. One observer said, you know, these troops are willing to be commanded um, by European officers, but not by Persians of a different tribe.
1: Which sounds a bit like India, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's not good. No. it's not it's not a good now, way to defend yourself against now
1: that makes the idea of moving all of these uh people from the caucasus to to uh to back to central iran now now i'm starting to understand it they really are trying to break down these these barriers
0: yeah these uh, loyalties <laughs> and that's the theme right that's the theme like in, in all these Asian countries, the Ottomans, China, Japan, we're going to talk about Afghanistan too, like modernization. They're trying to modernize, you know, their military, their bureaucracy to try to defend themselves against imperialism. And to do that, they have to break down um, these, like the tribal loyalties, whether, or the samurai, you know, caste or, uh, you know, the power of the landlords in China. It, it's, there's always, and this is, um, you know, there's all kinds of words. There's all kinds of meanings to the words "modernity" and "tradition." But when you look at it specifically, Asia in the 19th century, they're they're trying to modernize uh, their systems to for the purpose of self defense and and state defense. And their tradition is in their way in the sense of like everything that prevents people from being uh, able to work in this new system, in this new modern system. So um, geopolitics, uh, you know, the, the, this is the period where the monarchs are called the Qajar, the Qajar uh, monarchs, the Qajars. They, they, had, they took over from the Safavids who had ruled Persia for a long time in the previous uh, centuries. But in the 19th, it's from the beginning of the 19th on, it's the Qajars.
1: And their, and their main rival, their main military threat is the Ottomans. So to, f- to compete with them, the Persians sought alliances with the enemies of the Ottomans, which would be the Habsburgs, the Austrian Habsburgs, and the Russians. Uh, Persia's not as interested in uh, France or Britain because they're not interested in the naval warfare in, in the Mediterranean. It, mm-hmm. it just doesn't it doesn't relate to them at all so they're looking for major land powers that can be their allies against the ottomans so they made several overtures to russia they sent embassies uh, trade envoys russians very interested in persian silk unfortunately they were also rivals because their borders began to now march with persias in the caucasus so, you have a sort of a three-sided border there between the Ottomans, Persia, and the Russians. And this is going to lead to the first Russo-Persian war in the 1650s. It starts with a dispute between uh, Cossacks, who are uh, under Russian authority, and uh, a people known as the Le- Okay, uh, They're from Dagestan, uh, northeastern Azerbaijan. So they're feuding with the cossacks merchants are being plundered robberies committed most of them seem to have been committed by the cossacks and the lesgins are uh, complaining to their superiors and this would be the persian governor uh kosro khan of uh, governor of shirvan so he sent warnings to the shah told him that the russians were building forts Uh, And eventually, it took a while, but eventually Persia responded and sent troops to expel the Russians. And that was basically the end of the war, uh, Persian victory of sorts. Uh, The Russians also sent their embassies. Uh, A diplomat named Volinsky came to Isfahan in 1717. And he was asking for a monopoly on the Persian silk trade.
0: Shouldn't he have started with uh, let's have let's have coffee or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: but he wasn't just there to negotiate trade; he was also spying. It was an intelligence gathering mission. He wanted to know as much as possible to learn about Persian resources, about the geography, the infrastructure, the quality of their military. And uh, I mean, while he's there, he's playing up russia's role as persia's ally against the ottomans but you know while he's there a russian expedition landed on the eastern shore of the caspian uh, at uh, kiva led by a, a russian prince bekovich cherkasky so while you're having coffee with us and talking <laughs> about trade you're also expanding into our territory uh-huh. so volinsky uh, his report to the Tsar was that Persia was in big trouble, that they were on the verge of collapse. And he recommended, you know, going to war with them and immediately annexing uh, Gilan, Mazandaran, and Astarabad because of their capacity for silk production. So while while Persia is collapsing, let's grab as much as we can.
0: Yeah. And this is... um... This is still the Safavids. We haven't gotten into the Qajar period yet, right. so the Safavids are finally knocked over. I'd say by uh, the invasion from Afghanistan in 1722, and they're fighting mainly over the city of Kandahar, who, which is uh, a very peaceful, um, you know, prosperous place today, thanks to the American um, development program that's been. Uh, That's been in place there since 2001.
1: Well, it's prosperous for some.
0: Kandahar was, you know, kind of a prize back then. Um, So 25,000 Afghans uh, invade uh, under Mirvais and Mahmoud Hotak. Uh, They take the town of Kerman, but they are unable to hold it. So they camp 10 miles from the capital uh, at Isfahan in, in a camp Gulnabad uh, they have they win a battle there they defeat the Persians and besiege the capital so then Daoud Khan he sacks the city of Shamahi and, and this he
1: is... and he's a lesbian he's one of these people who were involved in the first war with Russia
0: Wow um so he sacks the city of Shamahi and then um Peter the Great is this Peter the Great
1: yep Yeah,
0: the Peter the Great, if you remember our Greats episode last year. Last year, Dave, we're talking about years now, you know. Oh, God. (laughs) Peter the Great and the Russians, they intervene. And their proposal is that they're going to help the Persians against the Afghans and Dawood Khan, um, provided for the small price of some of their territory ceded to Russia. So the Russians attack and occupy several of these provinces, Derbent, Baku, Salyan, Lankaran, and Anzali, where a lot of silk is produced. Um, but then Peter the Great gets warned against further incursions by the Ottoman <laughs> sultan. <laughs> so the Russians withdraw uh, from further conquest, but they do keep the territories that they hold. The Persian Shah abdicates to the Afghans, um, and Peter backs the ousted Shah, Tamasp, who reascends the throne. In 1723, following this war, uh, Russia proposes the Treaty of St. Petersburg, and they propose generously to keep the territories that they took. Um, when the Shah uh, hears about uh, this territorial element of it all, he doesn't. He refuses to ratify it.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a, quite a distance between the Caucasus and Isfahan, and there's <laughs> I found this very similar to China. Uh, I guess the envoy who was negotiating with the Russians was afraid to tell the Shah that this treaty involves us surrendering a lot of territory. (laughs) So he he didn't mention that part.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you you should, yeah, you should probably tell him what he's going to have to sign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then the Ottomans get involved now. They try to salvage this treaty. Um, so they get involved in the diplomacy and they also, um, as the as a, as a price for <laughs> for trying to uh, broker this treaty, they, uh, they decide that they should get some of Persia's territories.
1: Yeah, the tripartite diplomacy here and war, obviously, <laughs> uh, is really confusing. So the Persians are in trouble and Russia generously offers to move into some of their territory to protect it from the Ottomans. And then the Ottomans say, Hey, get out of there. And then while the Russians are trying to get Persia to accept their occupation, Russia <laughs> and the Ottomans have a few discussions and go, Yeah, let's let's share. <laughs> so the Ottomans take Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Russia gets to keep Mazandaran, Gilan, and Astarabad. And then they agree that if the Shah continues, to refuse to sign our treaties, then we'll both force him to, or we'll overthrow him and put a puppet on the throne.
0: So he does refuse. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and so, yeah, like they said, if you won't sign, we'll find somebody who will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So they get the Afghan, the Mirvai, the aforementioned Mirvai's uh, Hotak, uh, the Hotak dynasty, and they agree to be Shah, j- generously agree to be Shah of Persia, uh, conceding Zanjan, Sultaniyeh, Abher, and Tehran, all to the Ottomans.
1: Yeah, but that, that didn't last very long. Uh, in this vac- power vacuum, uh, Nadir Shah rose to power. So He's described as native Iranian, Turkic, and Afshar. And he's a warlord from uh, Khorasan. So he defeats the Afghans, drives them out. He defeats the Ottomans. He puts the Safavids back on the throne. I guess he wanted to be the power behind the throne, or he didn't, at first, didn't dare to take it for himself. And then he started negotiating with Russia, from a position of strength, uh, negotiating their withdrawal from the territories in the Caucasus. So they signed a new treaty, the Treaty of Resht, and Russia gave back Astarabad, Gilan, and Mazandaran. And there was another treaty in 1735, and I'm not sure what difference that made, but having done this, Nader Shah had put himself in a position where Ah, why be the power behind the throne? So he deposed the Safavids and had himself crowned Shah. And then in mm-hmm. 1739 he invaded India. He, he went to war with the uh, Mughals in India. Apparently the reason for the invasion was uh, money. He, he needed to finance his wars against the Ottomans so he defeated uh, a bigger, a much larger uh, Mughal army. Apparently, very quickly, less than three hours, and then sacked and looted Delhi.
0: Yeah, this is the famous, famous sack of Delhi. the The only time it was sacked worse than this was 1857,
1: or I guess 1859. Right. Well, I, I think Babur might have done it in the 1500s too,
0: <laughs> but he stayed, right? So it's a yeah. So
1: does it count as a sack if you stay? <laughs> wow.
0: <Well>, he reinvested. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I do, I do the think
1: infrastructure.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: So Nader Shah brought uh, immense wealth back to Persia, and then on his way back, he stopped off and conquered all of the Uzbek khan's, uh, I think, oh, except wow. for one, and made the Uzbeks his vassals. Busy, busy guy, and uh, his run of success uh, stopped in uh, Dagestan. So he's back you know, uh, reasserting his authority over territories belonging to Persia that had so been... So the,
0: the Dagestanis were too too strong for him.
1: Well, they switched to guerrilla tactics. They couldn't meet him in the field, but the guerrilla tactics kind of stumped him. He really didn't have an answer to that.
0: Uh, I don't know if you know this, Dave, but the the one of the most famous uh, mixed martial arts champions of recent years is from Dagestan. I did not know that. He's an undefeated... Uh, yeah, undefe- he retired undefeated about maybe about a year ago or half a year ago after after winning 29 and 0 record. Oh, so. is this the guy that beat
1: Conor McGregor?
0: Yeah, this is the guy that beat Conor McGregor. Oh, he's <laughs> frightening. <laughs> so he's from Dagestan. So everybody everybody uh, everybody knows Dagestan now because of because of Khabib Nurmagomedov. That's his name, right? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nader Shah ran into trouble in Dagestan. And then uh, somebody tried to assassinate him. And that would be a bit of a downer, I suppose. But apparently he he grew ill and uh, started getting a little paranoid. And others accuse him of megalomania. I, you know, hard to know. Hard to have a, a retroactive diagnosis as to what was wrong with him. But he started blinding his sons. He he suspected that they were behind the assassination attempt and he grew increasingly cruel, uh, which provoked multiple revolts and another assassination attempt in 1747 and that one was successful. Hmm. So with the death of Nader Shah, well, now it's wide open again, let the games begin and rival army commanders started fighting for control. So anarchy in Persia again. So now some of the far-flung vassals uh, begin to look around for protection. And that included um, a fellow named Erekle II. He's a Georgian, and he's the ruler of Karti-Kakheti. Hmm. Uh, and in 1783, he decides that he's safer under Russian vassalage. So he signs on with them. Uh Afghanistan breaks away. This is where uh, the Durranis Ahmad Shah Durrani, will found uh, basically the modern state of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking at these events from the other side <laughs> in our next episode. But for the uh, for the Persians, this is where they lose control of some of their far-flung territories. Uh, Basra will be lost to the Ottomans, and that's permanent. The uh, Persia doesn't mm-hmm. get it back. Um. And finally, you have, uh, I don't know why he's called the Sultan, but uh, Aga Muhammad Khan raises 60,000 men and starts bringing, restoring order and bringing these territorial governors back into line. And Mm -hmm. he does this by 1795. He goes back to the the Caucasus, reconquers Georgia, and... The reason that he gets away with this in Russia is it's that strange period <laughs> where Russia is more worried about Poland and the French Revolution than they are about the Caucasus. So Mohammed Khan reconquers Georgia, apparently brought 15,000 captives back to Iran, so more ethnic relocation. Hmm. And then he's assassinated in
0: 1797. Wow. So that's, uh, he's moved, he, Aga Muhammad Khan also moves the capital to Tehran. So it used to be Isfahan. Right. Um, his pr- crown prince, Fath Ali Khan, takes over uh, from that point. And he's, I guess, uh, one of these Qajar shahs. Um, so in 1796, Catherine the Great. Uh, sends 20,000 men to occupy the Caucasus and overthrow Aga Khan. So the French Revolution didn't stop <laughs> Russia uh, completely by any means. So the the plan was to overthrow Aga Mohammed Khan for, in favor of this Morteza Kholi Khan, time-honored uh, method of um, putting a puppet on the throne. But um, Catherine, the great successor, is Paul II? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: but he's not going to last all that long.
0: Yeah, so he withdraws the troops, but then Tsar Alexander, who we know well from War and Peace and from our Napoleonic episode, uh, annexes Kharti uh, Haketi in 1801. And then there's a long fight with Fath Ali Shah over the territory. So this is one of these like three emperors that last 100 years between the three of them. Uh, from 1797 to 1896, there are three Qajar shahs. One is Fath Ali. The next is Muhammad Shah, who goes from 1834 to 1848. And then there's Nasr Shah, 1848 to 1896, almost a half a century.
1: And that's always a sign of stability.
0: Yeah. And uh, what they're trying to do is modernize. So they try to set up a statewide bureaucracy. They try to set up a standing army but like the Ottomans, the the way they do their finances, uh, they, they're unable to modernize that for the most part. So they, they're unable to go all the way with their modernization in terms of their bureaucracy and army. They detribalize, but they don't get a modern government in return. And as for... Um, as for, the, you were talking, we've talked a bit about how the Habsburg um, family used marriage alliances. Um, well, Fath Ali married 192 times and married 170 of his daughters to tribal leaders. So,
1: How is that even possible?
0: I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not a mystery, but. I guess um it, it the numbers do seem to strain the limits of what is humanly possible for
1: sure. Well, is he allowed to divorce his wives?
0: Uh I don't th- I think the law about four wives is uh relaxed and also um for emperors and also concubines, right? Oh no, married, married one hundred and two times. No, I don't think he's divorcing. I don't think he's divorcing. Wow. I think it's uh I think it's a relaxed rule. Um, so some of the people, some of the Westerners who write a lot about Iran is uh, Lord Lord Curzon of uh, of fame in India. Um, there's also John Malcolm, who's the first envoy of Britain in 1800. So he goes there to try to secure the... British interests in India, uh, of course, which they simply are calling their Indian interests by this point. Yeah, Um,
1: part of of this is they're looking for an ally against Afghanistan. Yeah. So the same way that (laughs) Persia's is looking for friends to help them fight off the Ottomans.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about um, how the Ottoman Empire has this problem where the more territory they take, the more borders they have. Yes. Uh, And the British Empire is certainly indulging in that, uh, activity here with India. Um, so the British envoys though, they hang out at the Persian court and they offer a lot of free advice to the Qajar court, uh, over the years. Um, again, like they have some, the other thing that they do, uh, you know, in addition to their marriage alliances is they manipulate communal conflicts. So um, they're they're using the divide and rule kind of methods um, more so than the Safavids did. One quote from Ervand Abrahamian is, the Qajar dynasty ruled 19th century Iran with neither the instruments or, of coercion nor the science of administration, but with the practice of prudent retreats and the art of manipulating all the possible variations in the complex web of communal rivalries. Um they were helped by the collection of ordinary taxes, the infliction of extraordinary punishments, and the distribution of periodic rewards. So their method of rule kind of led to some instability, despite, you know, their being able to rule as a family for about 100 years. Um They do some degree of famine relief too, which we'll see uh, starts to break down towards the end of the 19th century as it did in India and China to great tragedy. Um, I should also say that the, you know, the emperors, it's always cool to read the emperor's titles. Um, So the Qajar titles included King of Kings, Supreme Arbitrator, Shadow of God, Guardian of the Flock, Divine Conqueror, and Asylum of the Universe.
1: Shadow of God. Yeah. Interesting. There's quite a few king of kings running around.
0: At, at... <laughs> I guess that's what an emperor is in a way, right? You have yeah, I guess kings so. as your subordinates.
1: Well, the, the failure of their efforts to uh, modernize, it's not really surprising given the obstacles that they have to deal with. But then again, there's also external pressure because the Russians are back Uh, In 1804, they start the fourth Russo-Persian War. Actually, they started in 1802, uh, attacking the small states around Georgia, and the Shah finds this a little too close to home, so he declares war. Uh, The Russian siege of Erevan fails for a a very familiar reason. The Russians ran out of provisions, Uh, but the Persians lost two battles, and in 1805, uh, some of the f- further Khans, uh, Shaki, Shirvan, and Karabakh, uh, formally recognized Russian authority. Mm. The Russians also attacked in Baku, in Resht, Talesh, and in 1806 they defeated the Persians again and captured Derbent and Baku. So, with this string of defeats, the Persians are grasping at straws and now they will ally with the Ottomans against the Russians. So the Russians are now the greater threat. So they attacked together with the Ottomans in 1810. They attacked Tiflis but failed to capture it. In 1812 they captured the fortress of Lankaran but then lost another battle. And the dates are are really interesting. I mean you have Hmm. battles between the Russians and Persians in 1812 and 1813. Yeah. And you would think the Russians had something other to do in eighteen twelve.
0: <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I guess a lot of them were going east anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah. Or maybe the news got there late. Oh, oh. by the way, we've been invaded by Napoleon.
0: <laughs> um yeah, it's incredible. That 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 was that's incredible. To me, like finding out the things that were going on at the same time as Napoleon is striking it's like i would you wouldn't think people would have time to do this stuff but mm. life goes on uh the i guess tiflis is tbilisi today which is in georgia
1: yeah Uh, erevan is i think
0: yeah i think tiflis is tbilisi i think that's what it is um okay so after is it mm -hmm. all right okay so 1813 uh russia imposes this Gulistan Treaty. The humili- it's a very humiliating treaty and the tradition that we will see after uh, you know the unequal treaties in China or Canada, <laughs> you know, um, these very humiliating treaties. So in eighteen thirteen it's um Persia loses Dagestan, Mingrelia, Abkhazia, Derbent, Baku, Shakit, Kuba, Talesh, Shervan, Karabakh, and Ganja. Ganja. I wonder whether that's Got that name because of the plant. It might, right?
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: Be, ahead, I mean, I'll that is it. what they call it in in that part of the world. They call it marijuana ganja. Anyway. Um, so Persia loses its Caspian Sea fleet. So that's a Russian lake now. And in Dagestan and Chechnya, uh in Dagestan, the the guerrilla fighters, you continue, they they continue to fight on against the Russians. For the next forty years or something, there's wow. a famous Imam, uh, Imam Shamil, who, uh, who again, Khabib Nurmagomedov mentions as a hero of his uh, <laughs> in his autobiography, Khabib time, which I'd highly recommend. <laughs> Anyone interested in Dagestani history as it pertains to the rise of uh, Sambo and martial arts you can check that out. Okay. So in 1814, there's a major rebellion in Asterabad, one of the royal princes claims the throne. So um, Fath Ali pardons him. So this is that strategic pardoning that Ervand Abrahamian talks about. He appeals to the, but then he appeals to the imams and the population, promising them lower taxes and more um, religious, you know, rights for the imams. So the does the village elders, they deliver the royal prince to the Shah, who then removes his eyes, which seems to be a common punishment for the Persian Empire in particular. Um, So Prince Abbas Mirza, uh, he tries to create uh, a new order army. Um, So there's 6,000 troops with modern mobile artillery and European officers uh, to train them. There's a cannon factory. There's a musket plant. There's a translation office for military manuals. Um, Abbas Mirza sets up embassies in Paris and London, sends Iranian students to Europe to study technology and languages. He gets the imams on side, but it breaks down because the nobles don't like to pay their taxes. The British attache also doesn't like uh, duty, to, you know, the kinds of tariffs, right? Uh, customs duties, that was also going to be a way to raise money for these various initiatives. So the British advise him, that's not good. <laughs> you don't really need that old chap. Um, so the army, uh, and the, anyway, the army isn't all that successful in the second war against Russia. Um, so the that's probably the first failure it takes place around the same timeline as the Tanzimat reforms in the Ottoman Empire mirza dies in 1833 so yeah
1: and he made an earlier mistake that we mentioned in one of our earlier episodes i guess it was the episode on isms the uh, the decemberist revolt in 1825 so this is russia tsar alexander died and he left uh, two brothers Uh, Nicholas and Constantine. And uh, the conservatives preferred Nicholas and the liberals were hoping for Constantine. So there was an uprising, an army officers uprising in favor of Constantine and it was put down very quickly. Uh, So Nicholas, the conservative becomes Tsar. And somehow, I don't know how, how they heard so quickly, but the Persians heard about the Decembrist revolt and mistakenly believed that Russia was having a civil war uh, Meanwhile there was also rebellion in the Caucasus and I guess Mirza thought he could take advantage of, of the of that.
0: Hmm.
1: On the other hand there's also the possibility that the Russians were being the aggressors as usual but it, yeah you know,
0: so they move into Mirak, which is one of the few territories that <laughs> the Persian Empire is still supposedly in control of after the Gulistan Treaty, and so Abbas Mirza orders an attack uh, on Russian forces there. there. There's actually some initial success, but then the Russian counterattack is successful, and uh, that w- which leads to the next humiliating treaty, the Treaty of Turkomanchai, where Persia cedes even more territories, pays an indemnity of two million silver rubles and grants uh, the hated extraterritoriality clause mm. so that Russians in Persia are subject to Russian law, not Persian law. They send uh, a famous person. <laughs> he's, g- he's about to get famous. Gruboyedov <laughs> uh, to Tehran to implement it. He has his Cossack bodyguards with him, and they uh, offend the population. In Tehran, they roam through the streets drinking. He goes into mosques and other places with his shoes on. Lots of um, kind of calculated insults to the Persians.
1: Oddly enough, there's no mention of that on his wiki page. <laughs> now he's a, a diplomat. He's a playwright, a poet, a composer. Uh, most of his work has been forgotten, but he did write one piece that is still remembered. So to the Russians, he's a a writer. Okay. Uh, I don't know whether they consider him a racist, but here's the Russian version of what set off the little crisis around Griboyadov. So the incident begins when an Armenian eunuch escaped from the harem of the Persian Shah. And at the same time, two enslaved women, Armenian women uh, escaped from the harem of the Shah's son-in-law. And all three of them sought refuge at the Russian legation. Uh, maybe they knew about the extraterritoriality. Ter- yeah. uh, but there was a, a piece of the Treaty of Turkmenchay that stipulated that Georgians and Armenians living in Persia were permitted to return to those places. And I guess these three asylum seekers uh, came To Griboyadov, asking for protection. That's the the Russian story,
0: right? Uh, So, (laughs) whether this is true or not, uh, it it could be true because it certainly there was a major mob protest (laughs) gathered outside this Russian mission. Okay, Um, wait
1: a sec. Wait a second. If if think of of yourself, put yourself in the place of somebody in the mob. Yeah, what would offend you? Um, Armenian women escaping from the Shah's son-in-law's harem.
0: I, I'm not sure that that would be like something that I would get so super fired up about as a, no. as a resident of Tehran. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe like religious offenses and um, drunken uh, bullying <laughs> might might be a different story. Yeah. Um, so there are protests. They they go to the Russian mission. The Cossacks um, fire open fire on them. That doesn't send them fleeing. Instead, they loot the mission and they kill uh Guru Boydav and 80 other people. So this is I guess this is the first Iranian embassy incident, Dave. Oh jeez. <laughs> um, uh, Abrahamian says by the end of the century western visitors considered xenophobia and religious fanaticism to be ingrained aspects of popular culture in Iran in fact they were mostly recent and ironic byproducts of the western impact on Iran ah
1: okay you
0: know so it's a, it's you know it's like you see the, obviously when there's an incident like this it's like the boxers the the Russians are probably all like, why do they hate us? (laughs) Right? (laughs) What's their problem? They hate us for our freedom. They hate us for our freedom.
1: Well, let me finish the Russian version for you because this is really entertaining. So apparently, Gerboidov's body, which was thrown from a window, uh, was decapitated by a kebab vendor.
0: (laughs) Because he had the equipment, I guess. Who
1: displayed the head, the severed head, on his stall. Oh, <laughs> so the mob then dragged My goodness corpse through the city streets and through the bazaars to cries of celebration, and eventually they abandoned the, the you know headless body on a garbage heap. After three days of ill treatment by the mob, the body was so uh, battered and well and headless that it could only be identified by a dueling injury to Grigoryev's finger. <laughs> That's uh, not dental records, but the, fin- the finger injury.
0: Okay, and then okay.
1: back in Russia, griboyedovs or, or actually, I don't know where she was at the time, but Griboyedov's widow, Nino, received news of her husband's death. She gave premature birth to a child who died a few hours later. Oh no,
0: the tragedy propagated itself all the way back to Russia?
1: yes. Oh my and, she, and, and the poor widow lived another 30 years rejecting all suitors and winning mm. universal admiration for her fidelity to her husband's memory. <laughs> wow. uh, it would not amaze you to know, I guess, that there are statues of Gurboyadov in Moscow and in, and in Armenia for some reason. <laughs> wow. but, okay. The story's pretty stupid, but it was a real crisis. Right. Because the Russians are going to take offense, and this could be the pretext for a new war, which Persia's not in a condition to fight. So the Shah mm-hmm. sent his grandson, uh, Khosrow, to St. Petersburg, and Kostro handed over the Shah diamond to Tsar Nicholas. So the Russians have a trophy <laughs> to remember this event. Well, for. yeah,
0: I mean, I, I think, didn't, um, didn't the Chinese... Uh... Qing dynasty send important envoys to apologize to France for killing missionaries. I remember that story. Yep. I think we told that. <clears throat> yeah. They send high level people to apologize when when these things happen. Yeah. So the next up re, the next reformer up is Amir Kabir. Um he takes up the mantle of reform. He's a former special envoy to the Ottoman Empire, so he's observed the Tenzimat reforms firsthand. Um, when Nasr al-Din becomes Shah in 1848, another big year globally, right? Revolutions. Um, Amir Kabir becomes the lord of the army and the prime minister. So he revives the standing army, establishes 15 factories, the country's first newspaper, named the Newspaper of Current Affairs, the first secular high school, Dar al-Fanun, the abode of learning, which teaches languages, political science, engineering, medicine, music, etc., and again, it's financed by new taxes and some kinds of austerity, which runs him quickly into trouble with the nobles. He's dim- dismissed, banished in 1851, and then executed. So not a great um, not a great time to be a reformer in Iran uh, in the 1840s and 50s. Um, in 1857, 1857, Dave, while the British are doing all this stuff, in india they find the time to invade southern iran and impose the treaty of paris in 1857 iran loses herat to the british they pay an indemnity of three million pounds to the Tsar of russia and make a number of commercial capitulations of consular and commercial offices they exempt uh you know the british from duties and tariffs the local travel restrictions and the British also get extraterritoriality. So while I was doing this research, uh, I came across a book which (laughs) boggled my mind, and it's the only source that makes this claim, and it's plausible enough, and I read the book carefully, um, that I think we should report it here. So there's a book called a Victorian Holocaust, Iran and the Great Famine of 1869 to, to 73. So in this book, the author, Mohammed Gholi Majd, claims that Iran had a famine over these this period, 1869 to 73, which is around the same time that India and China had their famine. So, you know, there's a climate element as well as, a, you know, uh, the global grain economy is... Is being created here, and this is the this is the result, right of the of the of the creation of this economy. So, um, he cl- he he claims, Dave, that two thirds of the population of Persia died in this famine. So, in in relative terms, it's bigger than the India and China ones, which killed maybe one in eight or one in ten. Here it's you know two out of three, uh, but I'll I'll tell you I don't I don't know that it that, that's the maximum he you know he makes the maximal estimate I think you can use even his data to come to a smaller number and I'll I'll tell you I'll, I'll explain why, okay. um, but he says the entire Western literature on the subject consists of three scholarly articles while two others contain indirect references. While it is agreed in these articles that the famine encompassed the entire country, there's little consensus as to the onset, duration, number of victims, and the causes. Gilbar gives 1869 to 72. Okazaki calls it the famine of 1870 to 71. Melville and Safe give 1870 to 72. And Kazemi gives 69 to 73. Um, so he says documents given in this book indicate the onset to be 1869 and death by starvation and disease continued into the summer of 1873 contemporary estimates of the number of victims range from 200,000 to 5 million with the lower estimates offered by british officials and the higher ones given by american missionaries and persian writers so i think i think it would be still a pretty huge famine, even if the numbers were in this range, right? Between 200,000 and 5 million. In relative terms, that would be comparable to India and China. But here's, yeah, let's go into what he says in the book. Um, he argues that the pre-famine, po- he's basically arguing from the pre and post-famine population. So 18 million was the pre-famine population. Again, that's his high estimate. Post-famine, 6 million. Um, and he doesn't think There was a lot of emigration because there was a plague in 1871, uh, and so er Russia and Turkey closed their borders. So basically, Iran took until 1910 to recover its population to the 1869 level, um, and uh, then it was immediately hit by another big famine from 1917 to 1919, which we'll talk about in our next series. Um, So it has to do with opium and cotton cultivation. It's a substitution for cash crops. Um, American missionaries actually introduced cotton in 1850 um, and exports of Iranian cotton drastically increased from 1861 to 1865. Uh, Any idea (laughs) why that? Yeah, so the Civil War, obviously, in the U.S. Um, There's a cotton boom that the cotton boom ends, obviously, in 1865. Um, but then opium cultivation increases, uh, having all this various successful opium wars that Britain has fought. Um, so the buyer of both products is, of course, Britain. So the opium areas, this is one of Mojt's arguments, is the opium areas are Fars, Isfahan, Yezd, Kerman, and Khorasan. And the famine is also in Fars, Isfahan, Yezd, Kerman, and Khorasan. So... Uh, you know, most points out that in standard economic theory, cash crops shouldn't lead to famine. If you can export, you can also import, right? Exports give you cash, cash gives you, you know, the ability to buy food. Um, but things were not going quite right with the grain economy in this period. Like, like we said, the Suez Canal opens in 1869. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, there was there was plenty of wheat in california for example and iran eats wheat iranians ate wheat but um there was uh yeah so the the global economy was kind of churning on so officials persian officials of this relatively weak weakened state they tried to ban exports of wheat when they realized the famine was happening but they were unable to enforce the ban um on the british dealers at the port of So there was a riot there in 1870, and the Indian government's political resident in Boucher, Lieutenant Colonel Pelly, was persuaded to release the stores of grain um, at a fair price. Exports resumed again. So um, grain was also exported from Azerbaijan to Russia. Uh, The famine was known in um, Britain in america so there was a a so-called persian famine relief committee and in in the uk and in the us they held you know big public events and raised funds for uh persian famine victims so here's how meshed comes to his estimate and i think you'll see there are potential flaws in the high um the high estimate that he gives so he estimates 12 million based on uh comparing and post-famine populations. So here's one Here's one area where he kind of calculates a high number. So there was a report um, in 1865 by, a, I guess, a British um, official estimating a population of six, 16 million. So uh, he figures, merged figures that if the yearly growth of population was 1.5%, that would be 17 million in 1869. So he's kind of bumping it up from the last known estimate eighteen seventy three uh, Rawlinson, who's a famous British official, reports a population of six million. One British traveler in eighteen seventy five said thirty seven percent of houses were occupied and sixty three percent were empty following the famine. so that tracks with his two thirds um, and so he figures ten million died and one million emigrated to get these um to get these estimates uh, again that's a number of calculations that he makes that kind of bump the population up, and uh, the re- the reason he believes there's six million after is also not uh, super well established. But yeah. I think uh, I think we can still I think we can still say that there was probably a pretty big famine here. Well, um,
1: if you had famine relief committees in yeah. the UK and the states, that's that's pretty big to attract that much notice, yeah i yeah, my first reaction to the two thirds figure is um
0: yeah
1: very, I, I don't very think there's that.
0: yeah, I don't think there's um I don't think there's you know cluster sampling or even good communications in terms of roads and
1: well, and saying that nobody could emigrate because the borders were closed, that yeah. never stops people,
0: yeah, 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 that's true too
1: we yeah. we've seen some pretty big famines where. You know, okay, million millions die, but
0: many more millions leave. show up. Yeah, they show up at the border. Yeah, I think they, there would have been more, uh, more. What do you call it? More board. people showing up at the borders, <laughs> and, and, then if more the borders re- and more borders are truly reports.
1: closed. Then yeah. there would be stories of massacres at the borders.
0: Exactly. But, yeah, more reports of that. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think it was probably. In the millions. I don't think it was probably two thirds, but anyway, I'm glad I found this book. So here's what else happened during this famine. In 1872, Baron, Baron Julius de Reuter, and I suspect it is Reuter from Reuters, hmm. but uh, anyway, Baron Julius de Reuter purchases for 40,000 uh, pounds and 60% of the future profits the rights, the following rights. The right to finance a state bank, farm out all customs revenue, exploit all minerals except gold, silver, and precious stones, build railways and tramways for 70 years, establish all future canals, irrigation works, roads, telegraph lines, and industrial factories. Good grief. So (laughs) Kurzan you know, I guess he's like the viceroy of India or something. He controls all the monopolies in India on behalf of Britain. And he's horrified. No, he's not horrified. He's jealous. (laughs) He says, this is the most complete surrender of the entire resources of a kingdom into foreign hands that has ever been dreamed of, much less accomplished in history. (laughs) And he's in a position to know. Um, So Iranian and Russian opposition forces it to be cancelled. So Reuter still manages to keep enough privileges to create the Imperial Bank of Persia, and the British do get the rights to the telegraph, shipping, and roads. The Imperial Bank of Britain makes the banknotes and gets the toll roads. Russians also get telegraph, uh, rights the port of Enzeli, roads, fishing in the Caspian, insurance of transport, and some rail. So Nasir Adin Shah He complains, he says, I have neither a proper army nor the ammunition to equip a proper army. And uh, he's trying to get these things and make reforms, you know, municipal police, road sweepers, medical clinic. There's paved streets in Tehran. He bans the slave trade, brings in the potato. (laughs) He builds prisons, of course, probably with American uh, approval. Um, there's a government printing office and a postal system. So all these reforms, but ultimately it doesn't get a lot of uh, support from the religious authorities this time. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we talked about the silver in the Boxer Rebellion episode. Yeah. I talked about the whole silver gold game that the British were playing. Um, so still so they're on the silver standard here and with the fall of silver, um, they get into the hyperinflation situation. So their tax their ability to get tax revenue actually declines in this period while they're trying to reform. And they had trouble raising revenue before, but now, you know, with with hyperinflation, they're pretty much hopeless, which is why Nasruddin is selling off the country. <laughs> he's selling all their assets, he's selling their infrastructure, he's selling high offices, he's selling concessions, land, taxation rates. And, uh, this is another reason like what happened in China and India for the famine, right? In the early 19th century, one of the observers said the subjects of the Shah are not poor. There are few evidences of extreme poverty in this country. Fraser, one of these other, um, observers says their houses are comfortable and neat and are seldom found without a good, without a supply of good wheat and cakes some mast or sour milk and cheese often fruit makes its appearance and sometimes a preparation of meat in a soup or pilau their wives and children as well as themselves are sufficiently though coarsely cl- clad and if a guest arrives there are few who cannot display a numed or felt carpet in a room for his reception so that's not the case by the end of the century um and in the 1891-92 uh Nasruddin sells another one of these monopolies this time it's a 50 year tobacco monopoly to one major Talbot This time it's for 25,000 pounds so uh, this is an example of a general an early relatively early example of a general strike the tobacconists just shut down the bazaar they impose a consumer fatwa on smoking tobacco so this is like <laughs> a, this is like um, the tea party in a way you know oh okay um, they're like no tobacco for anybody (laughs) so uh, Nasser Ad-Din finally has to reverse this concession too um, and reverses modernization as well and he's finally assassinated in 1896 Um, his successor Muzaffar Ad-Din Shah keeps up the opening of the country and the concessions and this is where um, like we did with China like we did with the Ottomans we uh, we can kind of like signal to the future nationalist movement. Um, so starting with a group of merchants who form the Shirkati Islami, the Islamic company, to try to protect domestic industry. Then there's an intellectual circle called the Tabriz. They create a journal called Ganje e funun So they're trying, there's intellectual foment. This is The journal is called a Treasure of Knowledge. The society of learning. There's secret organizations and political parties which culminate in the constitutional revolution of 1905 or six. So, you know, around the same time as the Young Turks, around the same time as the Chinese revolution in 1911, none of which we are going to talk about today, <laughs> <laughs> but stay tuned for the next series. So, yeah, that's that concludes our, um, our you know, our update on the Persian Empire. Don't you see a ton of similarities with the Ottomans and the Afghans?
1: Yeah. Well, except for the selling of concessions, like that's pretty desperate.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a fire sale. Um, it's true. And, and that, that also in a, in a weird way is like why I believe that the famine, um, you know, was probably a bigger deal than people realize because those are the kinds of circumstances when a ruler would just, you know, sign anything, right? Just sign anything, do anything to get some some money to yeah. put together. You know, worry about worry about it later. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it, for me, you know, the, the whole story of like trying to reform. This is where the the real modern modernity and tradition kind of battle is taking place. You know, nineteenth century Asia, I think. Yeah. All right, so we're going to Afghanistan next, mm-hmm. and I'm um, I'm I'm deep, I'm neck deep in research, Dave. I don't know if I'm going to be ready. <laughs>
1: You gotta get this one right.
0: I gotta get this one right. (laughs)